today, I want to ask you the question, what do you think of when you think of the Bible? Like, what pops into your mind? Uh, it might be you've been a, a Christian for years, uh, or it might be that you're here this evening and you've, you've never really read the Bible before. You have no real idea of what's in it or anything like that. But wherever you're at today, what specifically comes to mind for you? Because I think potentially whatever you might answer to that question is pretty important. You know, there are so many places we could look to each day for content. There is so much stuff that we could fill our time with. So I guess the question is like, why should we come to this book? Like, why should we do it? Because I think it'd be fair to say in the society that we find ourselves in, the Bible probably is less and less viewed as something to look, for, for, look to sorry, for guidance or for inspiration, and is more probably viewed as something that's a bit archaic, maybe even offensive. And the challenge isn't just outside the church. If you look online, there are a number of different surveys and studies, and the look at the engagement with the Bible. And one thing that many of them agree on is this. Christians in the UK generally read the Bible less than they used to. And in my job here over years, like in conversations with people both young and old, I would say that almost always consistently reading the Bible is one of the biggest challenges people find to growing in their faith. And more often than not, it feels like the way we view the Bible sometimes is a little bit like that grandparent that lives like quite far away from you, right? Like you always have that nagging feeling in the back of your mind that you should probably call them more than you do. Uh, and so when you think about it, you actually just feel a little bit guilty because you're aware of that. And the reason you don't call them more is because sometimes it's a little bit boring. You don't know exactly what you might say. And so then it becomes this kind of like vicious cycle in that the less you call them, the harder it becomes and the worse that you feel. And I think sometimes that's a little bit like our relationship with the Bible. Some of you might resonate. I'm going to return to that analogy at the end. But I'm aware there'll be people in this room who absolutely love the Bible that can't get enough of it. And there'll be many others who find it challenging and really want to grow in it. But for all of us, I think wherever we might be at, we need to be regularly reminded of how amazing this book is. And actually what it says about itself, not just how we might have come to relate to it over the years. And what I've found is that more that I've looked at the Bible, not with like my own historical baggage that I might be carrying with this book, but actually looking at it on its own terms, the more it makes me want to look at this incredible book afresh. So what we're going to do today, just in case you're wondering what the strange three things behind me are, is we're going to look at three different pictures that we find in the Bible where the authors are giving us a bit of like a visual image for how we might relate to Scripture. And a quick note before we jump into that is part of the reason that sometimes we find it quite challenging to engage in the Bible is that the mindset and the culture of the people who, who wrote much of it is very different to our own. Many of us in this room will have, whether we're aware of it or not, like quite a modern mindset. So we can sometimes come to this book looking for very, very precise and specific definitions and things like that. But the Jewish authors at the time, would have, they wouldn't have been trying to do that. They would have been trying to be far more imaginative and poetic and visual. For example, if I was to say to you tonight, like, what is God like? You might respond with something like, oh, God is powerful. Whereas many of the ancient Jewish authors would have said something like this, God is like a strong tower. Or where um, we might say, oh, God wants to transform and change us, many of the Jewish authors would have said something like, God is like a potter and he wants to shape us. Do you see what I'm getting at? Neither is necessarily good or bad, both are helpful. But for us, it means that actually we need to slow down a little bit sometimes when we come to this book. And when we do, we often will find it's far richer because of it. So the first picture 
that we've got in my little bag is honey. It's actually honey from someone in Trent, a beekeeper. And um, we find this picture, well, in a few places, but one of which is Psalm 19. And the author is praising God's words and his laws, and it mentions like the law of the Lord. It talks about the statutes of the Lord, the precepts, the commands, the decrees of the Lord, and then it says this in Psalm 19, verse 10. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. And then later, in, also in the Psalms, we find Psalm 119, which if you didn't know, it's the longest chapter in the whole of the Bible. And the author, he spends all 176 verses going through the importance of God's word. That's what he talks about for the whole psalm. The power of it, like the treasure of it, and the desire to know it more deeply. And one verse says this, it says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So the question, I guess, for us tonight is, what does it mean for us to view God's word as honey? Well, um, spoiler alert, when the Bible was written, they didn't have like Ferrero Rochers or like salted caramel Hagen dazs Has anyone had that before? You know, with like the little bits in it. It's amazing. Or even Biscoff spread. They didn't have any of that. But one of the like sweetest and most delicious treats they would have had was honey. That was a precious, luxurious treat. And in the Old Testament, you might have heard before when God was telling his people about this like future promised land, sometimes it was described as a land of milk and honey. Like representing God's goodness and almost like the sweetness of freedom that they would one day discover. A quick question, who can remember their first day of primary school? Anybody? This is me, rocking the bowl cut. Fortunately, not anymore. Um, we can probably put that down. That isn't actually me on my first day. That's as close as I could find. But the reason I say that is because there was this ancient Jewish tradition, right, that was documented about their first day of school. And in their education, the main reason they actually learned to read was purely to study and memorize scripture. That was kind of the whole reason they even went to school. Because the Jewish people, they loved their scripture and they wanted to teach their children to love it as well. So they had this kind of strange little ritual, it will sound a little bit weird, for that first day of school involving honey. So the rabbi, like their teacher, what they would do is they would give them this slate that had like the Hebrew alphabet on it and then they would literally pour honey over the slate. And the first thing the child would have to do would be to actually like lick the honey off the slate. And then they would read some of those verses that we just read about honey, sorry, scripture being like honey. And I guess like imagine that you're on your first day of school and your teacher like gives you your book, spreads some like Biscoff spread or something over it and then he goes like, here's your homework for tonight. I imagine that would go down pretty well. Um, but I imagine the reason that they did that is they didn't just want to like tell their children that scripture was important. Like, they wanted to like capture their imagination. They wanted to do it in a way that maybe would stay with them for the rest of their lives. And also because they, they just wanted to communicate how amazing the scriptures were. There was a reason they didn't sprinkle like cabbage or broccoli or, or something like that over the slate. They chose one of the most delicious things they could to show that the Bible isn't just like some boring vegetable that we have to eat. It's this delicious treat that we should learn to delight in. And a friend from here, from Trent, recently spent some time with Open Doors. If you've not heard of them, they uh, support the persecuted church all around the world. And he shared a story with me about two brothers uh, that were brought up in a, a country and a family where it wasn't allowed to be a Christian. And one of the brothers found a New Testament underneath the mattress of the other brother. And um, for the next four years, without his brother knowing it, he studied it, and he came to faith. He ended up coming to know Jesus through reading. And then eventually, his brother found out. 
But it turned out the same thing had happened with his brother, that he had also secretly come to faith through reading that New Testament and never told anyone. So then for the next few years, what they would do is secretly, with no one else knowing, they would get up in the middle of the night when everyone else was asleep, and under like torchlight, they would study the scriptures together. And then years later, they actually became the heads of their family when they grew up, and which meant their whole family ended up becoming a Christian family. And over the years, like I've heard countless other stories of how hungry, basically, the persecuted churches for the Bible. Stories where like, someone in a prison camp volunteers for toilet cleaning duty because they find out that one of the guards is using a Bible for toilet paper, and so they volunteer for it. Or where people would just be killed or imprisoned purely for just having a Bible. And yet they love it, they risk their lives for it, they share it with others, and they memorize it. And I guess that, for us, is like a little taste of maybe what it's like to view the Bible as honey. And I guess the challenge for us in a very different context where we have like complete access to this book is we kind of just get used to it, right? Like it just gets familiar. But when we fail to see the Bible as honey, we end up just seeing it as like a chore or a vegetable, and we end up going to the Bible less and less, and then it kind of makes sense to us less and less, and we miss out on like the power and the life that we often find in this book. And it's when we learn not just to read the Bible, but to actually delight in it, that we see a bit of what the incredible gift it is. So I guess the question is, what might it look like for you to delight in the Bible? Like it might even mean starting tomorrow, getting up a little bit earlier. Like if it feels like you've got no time, then you might need to make it. You might need to get up even earlier. It might mean like sticking a Bible in your car so that when you get to work each day, just before you get out of the car, you just take a little minute where you just read some verses and you begin your day that way. It might mean like getting some friends together and learning to like, delight in it together and appreciate together. It might even mean like trying to figure out how do I communicate this to my children? How do I teach them to learn to love it and delight in it? You might want to get out the Biscoff spread. What would it look like for you? So the first thing we've got is honey. And then the next one... It's not the most exciting lamp in the world, but it's a lamp. So, the second picture is a lamp. And one of the main places we find this again is Psalm 119, which I mentioned. Where there's a very well-known verse you will have heard of where it says this. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. And then in Proverbs 6, it says this. It says, for this command is a lamp. This teaching is a light and correction and instruction are the way to life. I don't know about you, I find it quite hard to get my head around like, lighting in ancient Israel. Uh, we're obviously talking about a time when there would have been almost no light pollution at all. Like, we, we live in Nottingham, so that would be quite hard to get our heads around. But last year, I, I got to go somewhere called Joshua Tree in America, which is basically a desert. And one of the reasons that we went there is because we'd heard there was almost no light pollution there, so we wanted to see what it was like. And one night, we drove like, right into the centre of it, and it was amazing. Like, you could see more stars than I have ever seen before. But what was actually quite scary was actually how dark it was. I'd not quite thought that it might be a little bit scary. Like without the car lights, you couldn't see anything. And I'm not going to lie, we, we got a little bit scared. You know when you like convince yourself that you've heard something or that you've like seen something or that like someone's just waiting to be at the car window, like knocking there, even though you're in the middle of a desert. And we didn't even dare get out of the car because we were convinced we were going to get eaten by like a coyote or a tarantula or something like that. We did actually see a tarantula the next day. But in fact, even when we wanted to swap driving, rather than doing like what normal people would do and get out of the car, we didn't dare get out of the car, so we literally like climbed over each other um, just to be able to do it. But the reason it was scary is because it was so dark, you couldn't see anything. 
And in some ways, I imagine that's a little bit like uh, what the world of ancient Israel would have been like. There was no electricity, there was no street lights, you wouldn't have seen anything. And lamps at the time would have looked a little bit like this. There's going to be a picture that's going to come up on the screen, a little small oil lamp. And even though that might look quite insignificant in some way, you can imagine how important it would have been to have like a lamp like this. Like to do anything at night, to be able to walk home from someone else's house, to be able to like pop over to your neighbor's house, even to walk around in your own home at night, you wouldn't have been able to do it without one of these. And so when we read about God's word being like a lamp, I think it's saying two things. One of which is how much we need it. Like just like at the time, it wasn't possible to function at night without a lamp. We actually need God's word. Like to follow Jesus wholeheartedly through all of the circumstances that we might face, to, to love our neighbours well, to be patient and kind and generous. Like to do that consistently for like decades is going to be extremely hard if we don't dig into this book. And the rest of Psalm 119, read it at some point, it's amazing, but it actually spends loads of time talking about this, about how much we, not just that we read it, but we need it. And that rather than like restricting us or putting boundaries around us, it talks about the freedom that it gives us, the understanding and protection that it gives us. But I also think the picture of the lamp kind of obviously is talking about guidance. Obviously, they used it to, to be able to see where they were going. And this week, I walked around the offices here a little bit to ask some people about their experience with the Bible. And I'd say almost everyone had a story of like a key moment in their life where reading this book just completely changed everything. And that actually the way that God supported them or comforted them or guided them was when they were reading this book. So one person was telling me about a time in their life when uh, they'd made some pretty big life decisions and it didn't pan out the way that they were hoping to. So they were 18, they left home, um, but they didn't just leave home, they moved to a different country where they had no friends, no family, and they all to kind of follow their dreams, basically. And quite quickly, everything fell apart. Their hopes were completely shattered and the plan had completely failed. And in the midst of that low, they told me about this moment where they were reading their Bible and they read these words in Proverbs 16. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And in that moment, they said that God like, completely changed their perspective by reading that verse. Almost to say, like, you, you might have had your plan and it might not have worked out, but why don't we try my plan? Like, why don't you try following me for guidance, that kind of thing? And they look back on that moment as something that just completely changed the way they looked at following Jesus. On a slightly lighter note, someone also told me that when they go to the dentist, they just in their head recite, even though I walk through the valley of shadow death, I'll fear no evil, even though I walk through the valley of shadow death, fear no evil. You might want to borrow that. You know when they like put that like rubber stuff in your mouth? Have you had that before? If not, you don't ever want to experience it. Anyway, what we find with this picture is that when we fail to see the Bible as a lamp, we'll inevitably just end up trying to figure things out on our own, make our own plans, our own decisions. But ultimately, like, we, we actually need this guiding lamp for our feet. It's not like an optional thing as we follow Jesus. There is actually something hugely liberating when we come to realise, I can't do this on my own. I need some help. And one of the ways that God guides and comforts us is through this, is through his word. But to, for us to be able to experience that, we kind of need to read it. We need to spend time with it. So honey and a lamp. And then the last one, is a sword. Not necessarily going to do any damage with this, but imagine it was like a really sharp sword. And um, there's just my house keys, don't worry about that. Perfect, it's not going to go anywhere. So, in Hebrews 4, it says this. 
says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And then in Ephesians 6, it says, this is what it says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we have this final image that we're going to look at tonight of the Bible being like a sword. And it's probably worth mentioning from the outset that when it talks about the word of God being like a sword, what it isn't saying in either of these verses is that the Bible is some kind of weapon that we should use against anybody else. Like that's not what it's getting at. In fact, when you read that verse in in Hebrews and you read the context around it, what becomes really clear is it's talking about the power of God like in our own lives, like to, to almost call us to obedience. And the idea is that God's words are powerful, they're they're living, they're not just like normal words we might read in any other book, and they're incisive, they go deeper than any other thing we might read. And there's, I guess there's the assumption when you read verses like that, that this Bible is actually there to challenge us and to shape us. And sometimes, I don't know if you've ever felt like this before, but it can expose us a little bit sometimes, can't it? Like it can almost be a little bit painful. I know for me there have been times when it's highlighted those character flaws a little bit that no one else knows about. Or maybe it's reminded me of a conversation that I had with my family where I left it on a little bit of a bitter note. Or it's drawn my attention to how well I maybe represent Jesus with my friends. Or it's made me think about the words that I might have used in a conversation that might have been a little bit more damaging and harmful than they needed to be. Or loads of other ways. But the idea is that when we come to this book, when we read it, we actually allow it to shape us. And not just to read it, but to actually give it authority over our lives and and the reality is that's not always evil. Sorry, it's not always easy. I've mentioned it before, but I'll always remember a conversation that I had with a young person a year or two ago where we were talking about something and they said this to me. They said, I know what I think about this. I don't know what the Bible says, but I know what my opinion is. And you know, all of us in this room, we will all have our own opinions, our own thoughts on many different things. But when we see the Bible as a sword, in some ways we're invited to do our best to actually lay down our opinion in some ways to lay down our rights and to assume a position of humility and be shaped by this book. And when we do this, it's actually to make us more like Jesus. It's not just for the sake of it, it's to shape us and change us to be more like him. And this week I I rang a friend who, uh, she comes to this church and I know that she really loves the Bible. And so I rang her and she's been a Christian now for about 40 years. And when I asked her about the Bible being like a sword, she said this to me, it'll come up on the screens. She said, many years ago, God spoke to me about the importance of putting on the full armor of God every day. But one of the things he really spoke to me about was the sword of the spirit, sharper than a double-edged sword. When Jesus was tempted, all he used to defend himself was scripture. And when I'm praying, particularly for other people, I feel like God gives me the right scriptures that cut right to the heart, to set people free, to cut through spiritual strongholds, to cut through addiction and bad habits. That's the sword. It's a very powerful weapon that we have but we do have to take the time to learn it and be challenged by it ourselves. And you know, when we chatted about it, what became really clear is she has spent decades like reading and memorising this book and allowing it to shape her own life. And she said this to me, she said, I now have an arsenal of scripture that God can use to speak to me. I thought, how cool is that, an arsenal of scripture? And the Bible is, is compared uh, to a sword in these verses because it carries power and it carries authority. The words that we read in this book, they're not just meant to like stimulate us intellectually, but to actually challenge us and to empower us. And that's because when we read the Bible, we read about the God who actually has the power to transform any situation, any person. 
the God who loves us, the God who created us. And actually, he longs for us to follow him wholeheartedly. And so when we fail to see the Bible as a sword, we miss out, I guess, both on the ways that it can shape us, but also how it can empower us to actually live differently. Some of the things that maybe in our lives that we have wanted to like, break free from from years and years, sometimes it's actually scripture that enables us to do that. And although there are many different ways that we're shaped to be more like Jesus, I don't want to make it out like it's just this, but actually reading and studying and being challenged by this book is one of the key ways that we get there. Because the Bible is a sword. That's what it's meant to be. And now, I mentioned at the beginning, there are many different pictures we might find in Scripture to, to illuminate a little bit of how we should relate to this book. But these were just three of them. Honey, a lamp, and a sword. And I know that at least in my own life, if I learn to delight in the scriptures like honey, and if I learn to like rely on them like a lamp, and to allow them to shape and challenge me like a sword, then my life would look different. Like I would look more like Jesus than I do right now. And I know at the beginning I talked about like our relationship with the Bible maybe being like that distant grandparent, but the flip side of that also has the potential to be true, right? So my granny, who passed away a few years ago, uh, was amazing. She was like the glue to our family, Granny Ryan. And everyone wanted to see her, to be around her. Like Even though many of us as grandchildren, she had loads of grandchildren, lived quite far away from her. We loved the little chats that we would have with her on the phone each Sunday because she was so warm and so kind and so encouraging. And actually, she knew us so well. She pulled the best out of us when we saw her. And she had wisdom far beyond my years. And Granny Ryan was amazing. And I guess rather than the distant and boring relationship, our relationship with Scripture can be like the kind and encouraging and shaping and wise grandparent who actually over years and years and years impacts the life of their grandchildren for years to come. And so the question for each and every one of us, including me tonight, is what kind of relationship do we want to have with this book? I heard a story recently about someone called Simon Ponsonby. He's a pastor, an author, a speaker. And um, when you hear him speak, he, he loves the Bible. He loves it. And basically, he was talking about a Bible he had that over many years, eventually, it completely fell apart. It got so battered, it just fell apart. And he realized it had a lifetime guarantee. So he was like, oh, I'm going to make the most of this. And so he got in touch with the, the publishers, sent it to them. And they got back in touch with him. And they said this. They said, this Bible has suffered from extreme use. And um, I don't know about you, I want to be someone whose Bible suffers from extreme use. Like, I want to be someone who is committed to reading and studying and memorizing this book. Not because, like, I want others to notice or because I want to seem really clever or anything like that, but because I want to be more like Jesus. And I want my inner life to look different in 20 years' time to what it does right now. Like, for my day-to-day interactions with this book to actually amount to, like, decades of impact. So today, for each of us, what might it look like for you to, to actually like engage with the Bible on its own terms, to learn to delight in it, to prioritise it? Because I imagine for all of us in this room, if we were honest, there's, there's room to grow, right? Including me. So what would one step forward for you look like? like? Maybe, if we're honest, you just need to give yourself a fresh start. Like All you've known for years is that nagging feeling of, oh, I know I need to read my Bible more, but I don't really know how to do it, and I don't know what to do. And maybe tonight you need to come forward and you need to receive just fresh grace and fresh creativity to engage with it again. Or for others, you might actually recognise that, you know, particularly with the sword, the, the Bible hasn't had that place of authority in your life 
Um, and maybe you want to tonight, maybe you want to do that again. Or for some of you, you've actually caught this already, you love it. And for you, it might be like, how do you share that with others? How do you share your love of scripture with the people around you? Because ultimately, the reason this book is so important for all of us is because it shows us God's heart for his people. Like it shows us how much we need him and, and basically it gives us the best picture of God we can possibly get in the person of Jesus. And it's as we immerse ourselves in his story rather than just our own story, the story of Jesus, as we learn to like delight in it and feed off it and be shaped by it and spend years of our lives centering ourselves upon it, that's when we're changed. And potentially the lives of many people around us are changed as well.